Now, my name is John. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, one of the pastors here, glad uh, for you to be celebrating uh, or spending part of your Mother's Day here. I want to wish all the uh, moms here a happy Mother's Day. And if your mom made you come here, uh, we're glad you're here as well. Um, our passage this morning is uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Uh, Luke 2, 1 to 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and he was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid.' I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who is lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. Um, You know every person here. You know uh, their doubts. You know their burdens you know their secret sins. And we pray, Lord, as we look at this passage, that you would open it up before us and your spirit would work in us a work to transform us more and more to look like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me if you just had moved to a new city and you wanted to get to know people and you enjoy running, so you said, well, I'm going to go check out a running club. And you discover there's one that meets down the street from your apartment, and they get together Sundays at, or Saturdays at 8 a.m. in the morning. Uh, And so you go there, and as you get closer, you see a bunch of people kind of congregating outside of the store's door. And as you get closer, you realize that all of these people are really, really, really skinny. And you can count every strand of muscle on their legs. (laughs) And then you realize they are all wearing running shorts. You know, the type that are barely long enough to cover your booty. And they are talking 
about what pace to go that day. And one of them says, well, hey, today's a rest day for me, and so let's take it easy. And the other person says, yeah, that's good. Maybe let's just do seven-minute miles. And you hear this, and your heart rate rockets, and you haven't even started running yet. You're wondering, what kind of running club have I gotten into where the rest day is a seven-minute mile? Where's the 14-minute mile group, you wonder? And you realize that you've accidentally crashed this elite running club. All you were looking for was a few friends that you could chat with as you went for a run, and now you're going to be so embarrassed, you'll never want to see these people again, right? They have no idea what it is like. They don't even remember what it is like to run a 14-minute mile or a 12-minute mile. And running with them doesn't inspire greatness. It just reminds you of how out of shape you are, and you just want to run away at this point, right? We are wowed by greatness, by professional athletes, by breaking world records. But I think there's also an aspect that we don't want to get too close to that because you will realize how different these people are and how far you fall short in their presence compared to what they can do. We want to go running with somebody who doesn't silently judge us for being slow and knows what it's like to struggle up a hill. And that, I think, is what's so striking about our passage today. This is a passage we generally just turn to around Christmas, although we're working through the Gospel of Luke, and so we've arrived at it. But what jumps out to me, and hopefully to you, is that when it comes to Jesus' birth, everything about it is ordinary. There's angels that show up, but his birth itself is so ordinary that if you were just going from house to house looking for this Messiah that had been born, you would probably miss Jesus. Jesus doesn't come fully formed. He doesn't come as this, you know, elite athlete. He comes as an ordinary human. We're looking at this series through the Gospel of Luke called The King Has Come. What does it mean that Jesus has come into the world, and what changes does that bring? And What we see here is that when he came, he didn't come in a typically kingly manner, but in an ordinary one. And why is that? What I want us to see this morning is that Jesus became like us in order to redeem us. Jesus became like us in order to redeem us. And so what we're going to do is just walk through the story, and then I want to draw out that main application at the end. So Jesus' story, or Jesus' birth, takes place during a census year. And Caesar Augustus is probably one of the best-known Caesars who lived in the Roman Empire. You probably have heard of him, even if you don't know about the Bible. And one of his achievements was to put an end to all the civil wars and civil disputes that had plagued the Roman Empire up to that point. Through shrewd politics and backed by military strength, he was able to usher in a peace throughout the Roman Empire that later would be known as the Pax Romana, or, you know, Peace of Rome. And this census that we see here was for the purpose of taxes, to know how many people lived in each region throughout his empire, so he would know how much to expect in taxes from them. And it doesn't seem that it was Caesar's requirement that you had to go to your own hometown to register, but it was part of the Jewish custom that you would go during a census to register in your hometown, wherever that might be. And so Joseph 
heads from Nazareth to Bethlehem, his hometown. And this is about a 90-mile journey. It would have taken him probably four some days to travel it. And this adds a whole new level to the idea of traveling while pregnant, because we know that Mary comes with him. Right? Airlines will usually allow a pregnant woman to fly up to 36 weeks, but apparently Joseph has no such restrictions for how late to let Mary travel with him. We wonder, why does Mary walk 90 miles when she's almost full term? Now, maybe you think, well, she could have rode on a donkey, which is kind of in our folklore, although that is something that was added after the Gospels and doesn't actually appear in any of the original Gospels. Although, I doubt sitting on a donkey while nine months pregnant would be much better than walking 90 miles while nine months pregnant. Maybe that is what put her into labor, is all that jostling on the donkey. So why does Mary go with Joseph? We can't say for sure, but you know, some commentators wonder if it was part of Joseph's way to care for Mary. Now, if you remember, there were all these questions that would have been stirring around Mary's pregnancy. Luke tells us here that they were not yet married, and yet she's about to have a baby. She spent a good bit of her pregnancy secluded away with Elizabeth, one of her relatives, who's the one person who knows what it is like to have an angel appear and tell you, you're going to have a baby. And so maybe Joseph doesn't want to leave Mary all alone to deal with all the questions and the rumors and the things that will spread around town about why she's pregnant so soon. And perhaps going to a place where people didn't know they hadn't yet been married for nine months would make that easier. And so there, they're in Bethlehem, and the time comes for this baby to be born. And it very simply tells us in verse 7, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And, and as we look through the story here, what we're going to realize is that a lot of the lore around the Christmas story actually isn't in the original story. Over the years, we've kind of had pieces added to it, and sometimes it actually causes us to miss some of the main points about Jesus' birth. A lot of these layers, uh, or kind of the folklore, can be added or can be attributed to something called the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is a very long and fancy-sounding word, but it was a, a gospel account that emerged uh, a few hundred years after the original gospels. If you remember back to the very uh, first sermon we preached through Luke, we said, why is it that we have these four Gospels that are in our Bible and not other ones? Because there were other, quote, Gospel accounts that were written about Jesus. And one of the reasons we have the, these four is because these are the first four to be written. In fact, they were, were the only Gospel accounts that were written in the same century that Jesus was alive. All the others came later, and they vary in very significant ways, in which that it's very easy to show they aren't historical. And the Proto-Evangelium of James, kind of, you can imagine someone who, like many of us, had that question of, what was it like for Jesus as a child? And so that story has all kinds of stories, some of them fairly fanciful, of what Jesus' childhood would have been like. It's interesting, but probably not true. And one of the little pieces that came from that is the idea that Mary rode on a donkey and that the birth took place in a cave. 
But we don't see any of that here. So one of the first things I want us to look at is where exactly was Jesus born? If you have a, a nativity scene or your kind of pictures of that first Christmas, you think of baby Jesus in this manger in a stable surrounded by animals. And we imagine this you know, grumpy innkeeper who turns this pregnant mom who's about to pop away and tells her, you know, go sleep in the barn. Well, what does it mean that there was no guest room available for them? And I think the NIV translation is helpful when it says guest room instead of inn. Because there were inns back in that time, not as common as today, but there were inns back in Jesus' day that were something like a precursor to a hotel. And we see an example of an inn in the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember that, there's a man who is beat up by robbers and, and left bleeding on the side of the road. And a Samaritan comes and sees him and has compassion on him, and he picks him up and brings him to the next town over. And there he pays an innkeeper to allow the man to stay in his inn until he's recovered and can get back on his journey. The problem, though, is that that Greek word for inn in the story of the Good Samaritan is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is a more generic term for a, a dwelling place. The one other place that this specific word is used in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus tells his disciples to go find a place for them to celebrate the Last Supper. So Luke twenty-two eleven, and Jesus says, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Same word in our passage. Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. And so understanding how a typical house was built or designed back in Jesus' day in Palestine is helpful. And back then, most homes were very simple, as you can imagine, and they just had two rooms. There was the main room where the family lived and ate and slept, and then there was a second room that was often a guest room. And it was either located behind the house or it was located up on the roof. And so when Jesus asks his disciples and to go and find this upper room, well, actually, that fits very well with a typical house design where you would have a guest room in the upstairs area of your home that would be furnished for travelers that are passing through. And that is where Jesus had the Last Supper. And that's the same word for where Jesus was born, which is kind of a, an interesting kind of mark of where Jesus begins his life and near where he ends his life is in the same type of space. And so it likely means that when Jesus was born... It's not that Mary and Joseph went to the, you know, local Motel 6 and it had a no vacancy sign on them, right, on it, and there's the grumpy, you know, hotel keeper that tells them to go sleep out behind the garbage can, but actually they were in a family's home, and that family's guest room was already occupied, and so instead the family welcomes them into their main living area. Perhaps someone else from the census was in town. You know, the census would have been something like a large family reunion as everyone heads back to their hometown. Well, let's continue to fill out the picture. What's the significance of verse 7 where it says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger? Now, that main room in a Palestinian house was divided into two sections. 
uh, there was kind of the larger area that would be up a little higher, and that's where the family ate and slept and hang out, hung out. Right? And then there would be a couple steps down to a lower area, and that's where the front door of that home was. And what was often happening in that lower area is at night, you would bring your couple family animals, your donkey or your sheep or whatever you might have, and bring them into that lower area in the house. And that way they would be kept safe or no one would steal them. And in winter or during the cold season, it would help to warm the rest of the home because they're all in one big area. The animals are just a few steps down. And then often what you would see in these homes is at the edge of that upper living area, they would carve out into the dirt some troughs so that you could put food there for your animals as they came in at night in case they got hungry, or they would construct something with some pieces of wood so that the animal could feed off on that upper ledge while the family is in the rest of the room. And see, so this changes our idea of where Jesus was born. William Thompson, who was a, a Presbyterian missionary of the 1800s, and he spent most of his life walking through Palestine, documenting everything he saw to help fill out a picture of what it was like in Jesus' time. And he wrote this, it is my impression that the birth of Jesus actually took place in an ordinary house of some common peasant, and that the baby was laying in one of the mangers, such as still found in dwellings of farmers in this region. And what we see is that Jesus' birth was so ordinary that you might miss it. That's maybe why we've added things, or things have gotten added over time to make it feel more extraordinary. For instance, in the Proto-Evangelium of James, the birth story is changed where he says, as Mary and Joseph uh, were headed into Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor as she's walking on the donkey. And so Joseph runs out ahead to find a midwife and then when he gets back, he had had, he'd stashed Mary away in this cave, basically, to get some shelter. And when she gets back, when Joseph gets back, there's a big cloud over the cave and I think like a flash of lightning. And all of a sudden, Mary, who is in labor, the, there's a big flash, and baby Jesus pops up in her arms. <laughs> it, and it, it makes it more extraordinary. But you see, Jesus' birth actually took place in a normal home. And he was born just like you or I would be born if we had lived there. And that's why we need the angels to announce something, because if they don't announce it, no one would know it happened. And so the scene shifts then to this, from the home to the fields nearby, where there are shepherds out gathered with their flocks, keeping watch over them. And an angel appears, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And I want you to notice just that little addition at the end. They don't just announce a Savior has been born. They say a Savior has been born to you. And why were the shepherds the first to receive this royal announcement? Certainly there were more worthy people out there. There would be more important people out there to announce this to. But the angels didn't take a wrong turn they weren't just giving a general announcement to the whole region, but they show up before the shepherds and say, a Savior has been born to you. And shepherds were once held in high regard 
in Israel. Their most famous king, after all, David, was a shepherd. But over time, the shepherding had lost some of its luster, and it was no longer you know, what kids dreamed of being when they grew up. And so when this angel, angelic announcement comes to the shepherds, that Messiah that all of God's people have been waiting for has been born. The, the shepherds were probably looking around them and thinking, well, who are these angels talking to? Because they wouldn't come and tell us this sort of thing. Did you guys take a wrong turn from your way down from heaven? Royal announcements don't come to people like us. But the angels say, no, he is a, shepherd, a savior to you. Well, then the, the shepherd's next question would probably have been, well, that's great. We're so excited. The Messiah is here. But there's no way anyone will allow us to go and see a royal baby like this. And that's why the angels say in verse 12, this will be a sign to you. Now, what kind of sign would you expect if there was a, a prominent baby born? You know, maybe it's big blue balloons out in front of the house or a royal announcement, or, you know, the news is talking about it and giving, sharing a picture of this baby. But what's the sign the angels say to look for? You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, how is that a sign? That's what you do for every baby. Well, Kenneth Bailey writes, the shepherd's natural question would be, if the Messiah had been born, how would they get access to him? And thus the angel's details are comforting. They would find the Christ child in an ordinary peasant home such as theirs. He was not in a wealthy home, but in a home just like theirs. And so the shepherds think, oh, this is a baby we could actually see. And they go and they see him. And they tell everyone about it. Well, how does this apply to us? Jesus' birth story, what is so extraordinary about it, is how ordinary it is. When you look at the birth stories of any other prominent religious figures or people in history, they don't have ordinary birth stories. In the Greek myths, you can read about a bunch of them. There's one Helen of Troy, you know, probably remember her from elementary school or middle school when you had to read the Greek myths, and she was considered the most beautiful woman in the world. And, and her father was Zeus, a god, and her mom was uh, a woman named Leda. And Zeus transforms into a swan, mates with Leda, and then Leda, this human, lays eggs <laughs> that hatch, and out of those eggs, one of those eggs, comes Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world. Or the birth of the Buddha. His mother, Maya, became pregnant while she dreamt of this white elephant who enters into her side. And then she gives birth to the Buddha while she's standing up holding onto a tree. And a child, fully formed child, emerges from her side and takes seven steps. Or even the English royals today. The protocol, at least recently, is for them to appear, appear, and you've seen the pictures when their babies are born. They appear outside the steps of the Lindo wing of St. Mary's Hospital, often just hours after having given birth, and everything looks perfect, right? The baby looks like a doll. 
The, the mom, the princess, is perfectly dressed with no hints of swelling or sweat. Uh, any indication that she'd given birth just a few hours before that, right? They don't claim an immaculate conception, but it is an immaculate birth. Everything is perfect, right? And why do they do that? To show we're not ordinary, right? This is not any ordinary child. But here, Jesus' birth stands in contrast to all of that. His birth is just like ours. The sign for the shepherds is that he is going to be found in a home just like the one they grew up in. That they would find him not wrapped in royal robes, but in normal swaddling cloths, like they would wrap their kids in. That he wasn't placed in a throne or paraded around and perfectly choreographed pictures, but he was placed in a manger, just like they placed their kids in. And why is this important? Because it's to show the type of people that Jesus came to save. And that he is a savior to ordinary people, to shepherds, to outcasts, to the lowly, to the rejected, that he didn't come to make the powerful people more powerful. He didn't come to, you know, have meetups with all the winners of the world and give them some high fives and then some tips for better optimizing their life. He didn't come to coach elite runners and tell them how to get closer to a two-hour marathon. He came to rescue the lost and to save the dead and to heal the broken. It's what Mary gets in her song back in chapter 1. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. You know, friends, Jesus became just like us so that he could save all of us. Every moment of your life, every molecule of your body, every aspect of your existence, Jesus took into himself so that he could fully redeem every part of you. Athanasius, this Christian who lived not long after Jesus wrote, the Lord did not come to make a display, he came to heal and to teach suffering men. For if he wanted to make a display, he would have just appeared and dazzled his beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. And how do we need him? Well, there's many ways. But why do we need him to be born just like us? Because he came to redeem all of you. He came to live a perfect life, one of complete righteousness from that moment that he was born until that moment that he died forsaken and alone. And he lived every second of that life in perfection. Why? So that he could then give that perfect life to make you whole. So that when God looks at you, a screwed up sinner, someone who keeps messing up, someone who can't seem to fix these things in their life. When God looks at you, when you have faith in Jesus, 
he sees Jesus in you and not your failures. He sees Jesus' beauty in you and not your sin. From that moment that you were born to that moment when you die. And that's the type of Savior that we need. Not one that looks at you and says, well, hey, if you can get to an 11-minute mile, I'll coach you from there, but you've got to get there. But he's a Savior for your entire life, even when you can't run a single mile. He's a Savior who came to save shepherds, those who didn't have much, probably had some baggage. And the angels come to them and say, he's a Savior to you. And so the question for all of us this morning is, will you give yourself to him? The thing that keeps us from him is often not our sin, it's our pride. It's our recognition, or it's that we refuse to recognize that we're far worse than we want to admit. We want to think we can contribute something. We want to think that we can earn Jesus' love. But you've got to remember how he came. You've got to stop trying to earn his approval and instead learn to rest in his arms. You've got to stop trying to compare yourself to others and realize that he has done it all and he covers every second of your life. And that when God looks at you, he sees the beauty of Christ himself. There is nothing of yours that Jesus has not redeemed. And it means now that Jesus can sympathize with you in your weakness, in your failures, in your being alone. Jesus left his throne to be born in a manger. He didn't float through life a few inches off the ground, but he was acquainted with the deepest grief. He knows what it's like to be human, to suffer, to cry, to get sick, to lose loved ones, to be betrayed, to be alone, to be forsaken, to die a violent death. He's a savior for someone just like you. And now his arms are open wide to hold you and to welcome you and to carry you home. And he'll make sure you get there. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would remind us of the Jesus that we need. Lord, he didn't come like all these others who people claim are gods or supernatural. But he came in a way that was so ordinary we wouldn't miss it. And he did that because what we needed is his life. We need him to live the life we could never do. And we thank you that he now offers to give that to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stop trying so hard, stop obsessing over our failures, stop trying to somehow think if we punish ourselves enough or do enough good that maybe we can atone for all the mistakes we've made. And to realize that Jesus has done it all. And he loves us so much. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.